Hey, welcome back. This is Maribel, and you're listening to Diferente. So you might have noticed that I did not have an episode in the last couple of weeks. There's a very big reason for that. A few weeks ago, our friend and guest on Diferente, Sean Box, passed away. You might remember the episode he was in, I think it was last summer. If you do, you probably remember his inspiring outlook on life. That is why I want to share this episode again with you. In honor of his memory and also the Box family, who was so welcoming to us when we were in Canada last week for the funeral. And I also want to share some of the things that I went through when I lost my brother-in-law four years ago, because I think that my experience through grief could help others who might be going through the same thing. There's a low-key way of recognizing someone who understands grief, and that's in the way they hug you, the way they talk to you, the way they express their condolences. I think once we lose someone close to us, We never look at life the same way again. And maybe you're in the stage where you don't even want to think about mourning your loss. And that's okay. Feel free to just fast forward to the interview. And when you're ready to hear this, come back. Because as John Green wrote in The Fault in Our Stars, grief does not change you. It reveals you. And believe me, in my experience, that is so true. So here's how my grief happened to me. On the day my brother-in-law, Eddie, passed away, I remember feeling numb for a while. My relationship with him had spanned 16 years, and the in-law part was just a title. His role in my life was truly of a big brother. And let me tell you, that first day when you lose someone, man, that first day really sucks. I remember feeling numb up until we were all sitting at the table trying to eat. It was clear that none of us were really hungry. We were quiet. Until all of a sudden, I completely lost it in front of my family. After holding back all day, I just lost it. I felt this awful pain in my chest. I remember saying, Siento como si me hubieran arrancado el corazón. I feel like someone reached inside my chest and pulled out my heart. Those were the only words that I could say through my sobs. The next week came and went so fast that there was just too much to do and little time to reflect. Then came what I called the painful quiet times. After all the guests leave and the last of the condolence flower arrangements die off, that's when the shit really sinks in. That's when you realize your loved one is not coming back to this life or this space that we inhabit. My days went something like this. I would wake up, angry cry in the shower, then go to work just like normal. After work, I would come home, go directly to my bedroom, crawl under my bed covers, and cry again. So after a couple of months of this and then other weirdness, including a first date that went horribly wrong when I busted out crying in the middle of it, that guy was so nice, I decided to try grief counseling. Which, by the way, some places offer at no cost to families of people who have passed away. And in my case, we were blessed with the services of an amazing counselor. Her name was Lisa. Oh, her name is Lisa. <laughs> Lisa was the grief counselor at the hospice company that Eddie received services from. And let me tell you, Lisa was a freaking lifesaver. She not only helped me sort out my feelings, but she also helped me understand that the process of mourning a loss does not always follow a specific order. You know how we used to hear about all of the steps of grief? Well, I learned that when we mourn, we cycle through and jump between steps multiple times because there's no specific way about it. It just is. Eventually, the pain softens, 
your heart begins to heal, and you feel more like yourself again. But let me be very clear. You never fully recover from a loss like this. You will still have the random days of crying. You will still always miss them. And you will always feel like that person took a little piece of you with them. In a very helpful blog post that I once read called Five Lies You Were Told About Grief by Alison Nappy, she wrote, And herein lies the gift that cannot die. Grief changes the course of your life forever. If you allow yourself the chance to feel it for as long as you need to, even if it is for the rest of your life, you will be guided by it. You will become someone it would have never been possible for you to be. And in this way, your loved one lives on in you. Losing Eddie taught me how to be a better sister, a better friend, and how important it is to appreciate our blessings. Since Sean passed away, I have seen these lessons confirmed through his family, his friends, and his love, Alicia. So before we go on to Sean's interview, I just want to say one more thing. Every person we love holds a little piece of us. When they leave our lives, they take that piece with them. That's why we feel incomplete without them for a while, sometimes forever. But don't worry, because it's a blessing to have that piece missing. That person took it because you gave it to them willingly. Why? Because you love them. Sean, you took a piece of a lot of people with you, and we're okay with that. So with that, I leave you with Sean's interview from last summer. I hope his words continue to inspire you, and I hope you remember that whatever you're feeling right now is totally normal. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming to you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you experiences and lessons in life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life. And it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Sean, welcome to Diferente. Thank you so much for not only being on the show, but also hosting us here in your home in LA. Uh, no problem. More than welcome to be here. So I want to talk a little bit about who you are, where you came from, and what led you to this new life in LA. So can you talk a little bit about where you were raised and just what your childhood was like? Okay, so... There's a small town uh, around 200,000 people called Windsor, Ontario. It is a border city with Detroit, Michigan. So I am Canadian. I am black. <laughs> I have uh, Jamaican roots. So I was born in Canada, but my parents are Jamaican. And pretty much Windsor was my home up until around like the age of 25. Where did you go after the age of 25? I finished university. And I was a computer scientist. I was working in Dearborn, Michigan. And then I wanted to try and get into the dot-com phase and become a, a millionaire. I moved to uh, Seattle, Washington, and uh, joined a startup. Oh, you did the startup life in IT. Yeah. But then after that, you kind of switched journeys, right? Yeah, so I did the startup life. Unfortunately, by the time I got there, the market was crashing. And so I just had to be a... A regular software engineer and 
and work and work work and still get paid well, but didn't get the options of becoming a millionaire. I worked on TN visas, which is uh, like a free trade visa. Yeah, North American trade agreement. Yeah, NAFTA. NAFTA between. Actually, I, I'm familiar with that because I'm from Mexico. There you go. And then I went on to an H-1B visa. And then I got my green card. And so after I got my green card, I'm like, around that time, I got the screenwriting bug. And it was just a hobby, but I really couldn't leave the company I was at until I wanted to get proper paperwork. Because if not, <laughs> if you leave a company, then you have to kind of start out over. There's long lines, like long queues. Yeah, um, for an immigrant, it's always difficult. Yeah, I understand. So immigrants tend to have some some sort of conditions on them when they're working until they get a green card. And then after I got the green card, came to L.A., continued doing software work from home, but was really passionate about screenwriting and just trying to trying to break into that industry. Why screenwriting? What called you to that all of a sudden? So around, I'd say around 29 years old, around that time, I was telling my friends, I go, we need some grown-up hobbies. And I was actually thinking about becoming... A DJ. Is that a grown-up hobby? That's a grown-up <laughs> hobby. Because I feel like any hobby, you need to spend a little bit of money. And so I get some. I was thinking about buying some DJ equipment and downloading all the software. You know, it's all digital now. And just trying to learn how to scratch and just have some fun on the side. <laughs> Sounds of, very grown-up to me. Yeah, on the side of uh, doing my day-to-day job. But my buddy, he ended up buying all this equipment when I told him. And he ended up doing a little DJing work. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be a filmmaker, you know? Maybe I'll make a little movie. And my ideas were, you know, complete trash. And uh, my girlfriend at the time goes like, why don't you learn how to write a script? And at that time, I didn't really look into the script writing world. I just thought like, I could just get some people together and shoot stuff. Uh, and so I'm like, all right. And so I, I downloaded um, Mean Girls and I downloaded the movie The Matrix. And they're both really well-written scripts. And so sometimes in life, you look at something, you're like, I can do this. And so when I read those scripts, I'm like, I can do this. I dribbled a basketball. I've shot. I knew I was going to be in the NBA day one. You know what I mean? I've done karate. I knew I wasn't going to be a UFC fighter. But when it came to writing, it just felt like I can do this. And so I started and I tried and went to L.A. So let me go back a little bit. We'll get back into the writing, but I want to learn more about your journey coming to the U.S., So you're an immigrant, just like me. What is your favorite part about living in this country? So uh, Canada is like Diet Coke. (laughs) I don't like Diet Coke, and Canada seems likable. Yeah, you know, it's less calories. It's not as harmful for you. It doesn't taste. It tastes pretty good. It tastes pretty close. Pretty sure Diet Coke is not good for you. (laughs) Uh, I know, I know, but in general, (laughs) okay, in general, Canada is like Diet Coke. Well, America is like Red Bull. All right? Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Okay. If you want to look at it another way, you could say Canada is like green tea. Like green tea, glass of wine. Well, America is like double shot espresso. Double shot espresso, Jaeger bomb. You know, so, car bomb. Right? What's that one? Irish car bomb. Yeah. So, if you're like really ambitious, America does present more opportunities, especially when you're young. Because in Canada at the time, even in software and in technology, they kind of expected you to kind of like earn your way through years and years of work in a traditional, hey, you start off in this this position and you keep moving your way up. While America, if you have a great idea, somebody could fund you and you could be the CEO when you're 25, you know? 
it's changed now, but at the time that was more the case. America's a little bit more capitalistic and a little bit more risk-taking. And by nature, I'm a risk-taker. So I'm like, let's, let's swim with the sharks and, and let's see what happens. That's a wonderful story. So what are the major differences between living here and living in Canada? I feel like in Canada, the, the politics aren't as divisive. And so there's an argument, there's a debate, and it kind of makes more sense. It's not, should we dismantle the government? It's how do we make the government work for us more, you know? So I remember like recently there, the debate was, you know, how much money should go towards healthcare? You know, this percentage or that percentage, and that's a fair debate as opposed to, we don't need healthcare. And this was a debate in Canada about how much Canada, money should yeah. go into healthcare. And there's just simple things where they don't tend to go back on things. It's like once the law is there, Canadians aren't as protest heavy. And so we kind of like, even if we don't like it, we'll probably kind of accept it and we'll be with it for a while. Like, for example, um, they added, a, I remember in my lifetime, they added like a second tax called the GST. And so in Canada, it's like you'll get taxed maybe 7% on something. And in other things, you get taxed like 15%, like another 8%. And Canadians complained, but every politician, doesn't matter what party they're from, they're not getting rid of that tax. They need that money. And so I feel like in America, sometimes they'll be like, oh, I'm a politician. I'm going to lower your taxes to zero. Well, you need that money. Something's either going to get cut or you're going to go in debt. So it just feels a little less volatile. It just makes more sense to me. Well, I feel like in America, the politics can just be used to, used to gain power, but not really necessarily used to help the people. And what about the relationships between cultures and people of different backgrounds? Because Canada is pretty diverse. Yeah. So as a person of color, when I was growing up, most of the people of color were first generation Canadians and our parents were immigrants. So it's just a bit different. Like if you see a black person in Canada, chances are you can be like, where are you from? And they're gonna be like, oh, I'm from Ghana. It means they're Canadian, but their parents are from Ghana. You know what I mean? Or I'm from Jamaica. Or I'm from Nigeria, this, that, this, that. While in America, if I see a black person, hey, where are you from? They'll be like, I'm from Michigan. Because they've been in Michigan and parents are from Louisiana. And it's just generations after generations after generations down that they've been here. So that can be kind of a good and bad thing because immigrants usually come here with a little bit of like, hey, let's just see what happens and make it work. While the longer you're in a country, you could get a little bit discouraged if things aren't going your way. You know what I mean? If things aren't going your, your grandparents' way or your, or your father's way, you might think that you're stuck as opposed to, hey, this is the new land. Let's, let's just see what happens. And the flip side could happen. If you're generational, you could have a lot of wealth getting transferred to you. Most immigrants I know didn't come from a lot of wealth. They, you know, they had to kind of save up and, and make the trip to Canada. So it, it's just a, a different culture, probably a little bit less racist. Because it's, I mean, there's still racism, but I, I don't think it's as like institutionalized as it is in America. Was that kind of a shock for you when you came to the States? Were you ever treated differently than you were back at home? Well, yes and no. I feel like... The media in America tends to highlight the negative things out of America a lot. And so when I came to, I went to Seattle, had my guard up, you know, I was thinking, uh oh, this place is going to be rough. And Seattle's beautiful, you know, there's mountains, there's lakes. I was in tech. Everyone in tech just wants to work on computers. So I didn't feel it. And I'm always in industries that are a little bit less racially sensitive. 
For example, as a tech worker, if you can code, you're getting a job. Like we would interview people over the phone and hire them. We fight unseen if they had the right skills. We, we, we could care less. If you're a man, you're a woman, it just doesn't matter. Now, if you go higher up in the levels, there's probably going to be some, you know, you have the VPs and all those people. You, you might see a change of attitude and stuff. But as an engineer, again, if you got the skills, you're going to get paid. Guaranteed. We don't care what you look like. Going back a little bit to when we were talking about you becoming a writer, you explained that you became a writer, basically, because you were looking for a new hobby. Yeah. <laughs> but... There it took a while. <laughs> <laughs> but there had to be something else calling you to it. Like, what was specifically pulling you towards that? Well, I think um, my intellectual, like, desires were being met with computers and software and problem solving. But my creative desires were lacking. And I grew up drawing. I grew up doing animation. I grew up screwing around with my friends and doing, like, like almost like signing at live skits. In high school. And then it's like 15 years or 10 years later, it's all gone. There's no comedy. I have a pretty good sense of humor. And in the tech world, I was good at tech, but there's a lot of people good at tech. And I'm like, I have other skills. And so maybe if I get lucky and put some work together, I can put some of these skills on, you know, into a story. Part of it is that. And then part of it is a lot of the things you like as a kid, you still like. You know, I was an usher in a movie theater for maybe like nine months when I was in high school, like a year maybe. And I saw so many films and you just, I like watching movies. I like playing video games. I like listening to music. Like if I could sing, I'd try and make it on American Idol. I can't sing though. You know what I mean? So, you know, whatever your passions are, it's just easier to try and climb that mountain if you like doing it. It's hard if you don't, and it may not be worth it if you don't. But if you like it, and it's your passion, and you're doing it for free anyhow, just keep going and see what happens. When did your break come? So I moved to L.A., and I was here for—I moved in, like, 2010. And I kept writing, and I kept entering my scripts and contests. And basically, as a writer, most times you start, you're not very good. And I was no different. I had some great ideas, but I couldn't translate my ideas into a script. It's very technical and it's a tricky format to handle. So I kept entering in contests, but slowly but surely, like I would make like the quarterfinals, which we might be like, say the top 25% of a contest, which is not bad. You're not going to get hired because they're looking for... Top tier. Yeah, the top tier. But I'm like, all right, cool. And then like a couple of years later, I might write a new feature. You get to the semifinals, and maybe there's a top 10%, you so know? So these were contests you were entering online? Yeah, these are like writing screenwriting contests. contests. And next thing you know, I started winning, you know? I started getting like top 10, top 5, contest winner. So at that point, you pretty much got the skills. So I entered a contest called The Blacklist, and it's kind of like a famous online contest. Uh, well, it's a famous online way of finding scripts. Not really a contest, but... I call it like a dating site where you put your script up and you're looking for suitors. And so I got some good scores. And then a couple of producers found me. And one of the producers, her name is Issa Rae, who at the time, she was kind of like a YouTube star and very influential and getting like some TV development started. So Issa saw my stuff and introduced me to my management. And we ended up shooting my pilot like on this like YouTube indie 
Oh, the pilot's called Bleach. <laughs> so if you Google Bleach and Box, B-O-X-E, and Pilot, you, you can watch myself and Issa's creation. So at that point, once you get repped, and so in the industry, they call it repped, representation, because you need people that are going to help you take your material to the people who want to read it. The industry is full of a lot of wannabes, and so representation kind of says, hey, this writer, we vouch for him. We put our name behind him. Like legitimizes you. It legitimizes you. So I went through a ton of meetings, and basically when you, when you meet someone, they've already read your work, and they like what they read, but they want to get to know you. And so I struggled a little bit because I didn't have any connections. I never was in the writing room. Most writers have a little bit of industry savvy and, you know, then a little industry work. I came from technology and the executives would look at me like, you know, what's a database? You know, what the hell does that mean? And probably thought that my life experience wouldn't translate into their show. So I went on a meeting with Silicon Valley, which is an HBO comedy about startups and, and the trials and tribulations of computer people. And so it was one of the few shows where my background could click with the show, you know, so I can add like insights and stories. Because part of being a writer is what you can do on the page. And part of it is who are you as a person? So if you're a fireman and you're a writer, chances are you'd be great for, you know. Chicago Fire. <laughs> exactly. Whatever procedural CBS fireman 911 show, you'd, you'd be perfect for that because you can say you have insight. If you're a mother of five, and the show is about family and raising kids, you're going to have more stories than I don't have kids. I don't have, I, there's only so many stories I can tell. While you're going to have like, well, this happened today. And they'll be like, oh, shoot, that's funny. Let's put it in. So, yeah, I got on Silicon Valley and that was uh, kind of like a life-changing event because it's a pretty highly regarded show. So I knew that if I'm on this show, I'm going to be surrounded by really talented writers as well as it's a good credit. So after the show is done, People no longer look at you as like like a rep writer with some skills. They look at you as a, a working writer now. And then you can go from show to show to show. How much of reality, like real life stories, goes into some of these shows that you've been working on? It depends because it doesn't have to be your life. It could just be someone you know or you heard or just something your imagination. But I would say like I tend to write like the underdog story. So... A lot of like Silicon Valley storylines that I'm pitching, I'm either pitching it from my past experience or just pitching it from the themes of, hey, if you're struggling, it'd be funny if this happened. I just kind of like that story. It's kind of just, you know, every writer has something that they like. That's me. And then I used to write romantic comedies. So in Silicon Valley, I couldn't really use that because there's not a lot of romance on the show. But I'm like, like I'm writing on a show now where I can like recall dating stories, and just funny things that either happen to me, happen to somebody I know, or I think would just be funny. I think it's interesting that you mentioned earlier that when you're a writer, when you're starting out, you think everything's good, but your stuff kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of encouraging, though, because a lot of people out there are probably trying to become writers and trying to express themselves on, on the computer, on the screen now. I, I shouldn't say paper. And... I think a lot of people are usually kind of discouraged by just being novices. But knowing that ahead of time, knowing that your stuff might suck, but it's okay because everybody's stuff kind of sucks at the beginning is encouraging. It's kind of no, nice to definitely, know that. No, definitely. I was in a writing group and uh, 
one of my friends broke out and sold a script and got a show. And it was really good to see him be an average writer in the writing group. And by the time I read the pilot that sold, it was so strong. And so it was like, wow, he improved. If he can improve and he's your friend, you can improve. Same with going into a writing room. Like you could be great on the page, but you're collaborating with like 10 other writers. You're pitching ideas. How do you become good in a room? And you see people that can just fire off jokes, stories effortlessly all day, every day. And you're like, wow, how'd they do that so fast? The speed, the accuracy, the quality of their ideas is so strong. And you talk to them and they're like, oh, when I first started, you know, I was shy. I was quiet in the room. I was this. I never spoke. So that makes you feel good because when you first start in a writing room, you're shy, you're quiet. You're really not supposed to speak too much. So it's not even that like you're bad. It's just that you're inexperienced. So writers in general are kind of encouraging because we know how hard it is. We're always like looking out for just quality of of, uh, substance and we're just trying to help each other. What's the best career advice you have ever received? This one producer, because I used to tell people, oh, I'm a software engineer and I, you know, I do a little writing. And she goes, well, you're in Los Angeles. Tell people you're a writer. Nobody really cares how you make your money. They care what you're passionate about, what your skill set is. And so if you tell people you're a writer, it could be a few months later, someone goes, oh, yeah, you're a writer, right? Yeah, well, I'm working on this project. You want to take a look at the script? Maybe you can come on. Because there's writers at every different level, and there's projects at every different level. So when she told me that, I'm like, okay. And I, I used that. And then I was in the gym at my apartment building, and I met this guy who was working out. And we're just shooting, his, we're just talking, chatting, throwing a curse. And he goes, what, what do you do? I'm, like, I'm a writer. He goes, oh, yeah, I'm a lawyer. And it was like months later. He's like, well, you know, I'm a lawyer, but, you know, I do kind of do a little dabbling in entertainment. And we're looking for some ideas for an animation project. I'm like, okay, I, I think I have one. Fast forward three and a half years later, we just sold that movie, you know. So if I never told him I'm a writer, I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm a software engineer. It doesn't lead to the next follow-up conversation. It doesn't lead to me pitching an idea. It doesn't lead to me writing a script, optioning. All those things happen. So you got to kind of own it. If you're a director, you're a director. You're an actor, you're an actor. No actor says, I'm a waiter. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They say, I'm an actor. Yeah. And they own it. They're used to owning it. I feel like writers kind of get a little, like, insecure a little bit. And, and we, don't have to, we don't have to be that way. If you wrote one script, you're a writer. Keep writing. That's great advice, actually. So recently, you went through a major life-altering event. Can you talk about that? Sure, sure. So I had a, it was during a Silicon Valley, so I had some health issues. And uh, unfortunately, the health issues uh, turned out to be cancer. And it was weird for me because I was so, like, anxious to become a writer. that by the time I got to being a writer, it was almost like achievement. I did it. And so when the cancer hit, I'm like, okay, cancer is tough. It can kick most people's ass. And the chances of you being successful beating it are low. But the chances of me being successful becoming a writer are also low. Is low. And I did it. So it's like if the cancer hit before <laughs> I got on, I'd be in a little trouble mentally. But it hit after. So I'm like, well, I already climbed the mountain. What's another mountain? You know what I mean? I'm not discouraging. I'm not like downplaying it. I know. Most people have been touched by cancer, either themselves, close family members, close friends. So 
I'm not trying to say it's nothing, but it's just when it hit at that point in my life, um, which was literally last year in January, it took some time to get used to the idea and used to treatment and used to setbacks and kind of like kind of getting healthy again to the point where I can, you know, continue working while getting treatment. But it happened at like the right time for me. So mentally, it was easier to embrace because I already climbed a mountain. You know what I mean? I'm not saying, hey, I climbed a mountain. If cancer takes me, hey, I'm good. But it was such a big achievement that I'm like, you're going to be good. You're here now and you can do both. You can get treated and you can keep writing. Did you think that immediately, though? Immediately after you found out you had that outlook? Well, no, because I was like, I just finished one show. I was on a new show. They're talking about this Netflix show after, then maybe go back to Silicon Valley. So I was like, I was just ready to work. And so immediately when they're like, okay, uh, we're going to do chemotherapy. You're going to, you know, you may have to have surgery. I was like, but I won't be able to work. And they're like, no, because the drugs I was on, especially at the beginning, were really heavy. I was in a decent amount of pain, so I needed painkillers. So my body was was in bad shape. And it wasn't so much that, oh my gosh, cancer sucks. It was like, cancer's preventing me from working. Like, I want to work. So it just took me time to realize you need to take a break. Your career, it just started, but it's going to go on pause. Like, my body may never be truly 100% healthy. I may just live with cancer. It happens sometimes. But... um your body will be back to a level where you have a good work-life balance. But at the time, my body was beaten up, and I need to take a break and heal. And what, that took a couple of weeks to get used to. But then healing became not nice, but like your perspective on life was changing. People are just, just outpouring of love. Family or friends are visiting. So healing became, I wasn't just healing. The people that are visiting me, they were healing. Because a lot of people, when they visit you, they need a break too. You know what I mean? Like, I have a cancer, but it, I'm not depressed. There's people that visited me that were like stressed and this and that. And it's like they get a chance to kind of stop what they're doing to come see me. We go to the beach, hang out, talk. And it was like, we're both healing in a weird way. You know what I mean? Everyone's life is challenging. I don't know anyone that says, hey, my life is easy. Oh, I'm happy all the time. Everything just works out. That's, that's BS. <laughs> Mine is just obvious, you know, <laughs> like. Like there's doctors going, okay, we need to we need to see you every every other week because you got some problems going on. It's almost easier to handle as opposed to you don't know what to do with your life or life is challenged or you have a breakup or all those other stuff that's going on in your life. So the mentality was just like, let's deal with it. We'll see what happens. You have to hope that things will get better. We also embrace the fact that your life might be shortened and it's just a balancing act and you just have to you have to deal with both worlds all the time. But at the same time, you get freedom to live and live like you want to live. Like you don't have a lot of anxiety saying, oh, society says I shouldn't buy a Ferrari. If I want a Ferrari right now in my life, I'm going to buy it. I don't want one. But if I do, I'm buying without any hesitation. And who's going to tell, you know, who, who, what's anyone going to say to me? Hey, you shouldn't do that. It's like, why? That's what I was going to ask you. What's it like to be confronted with the reality of your mortality? It, what kind it, of emotions go through you? It can be like, eventually it leads to freedom. It leads to free thought. It leads to do what you want to do. It leads to being present. It leads to being more loving, you know? It can lead to zen-like feelings of the things that you thought mattered don't matter. I just remember one time I was, uh, I used to have a lot of pain and I couldn't sleep through the night. And so the first time I slept through the night, like this was like early last year, 
I was so happy. It was like Christmas, you know? It was a great day. And I realized that's a simple thing. People take for granted that when they go to sleep, they're not going to be in pain. They have to, you know, get up and move around and all that stuff. So I'm like, every night you go to bed and you wake up in the morning, that's a good night. That's a good day, you know? So you just get used to being a little more appreciative of stuff. And so when good news hits, I'm, I'm through the roof. I'm so happy. When bad news hits, it's like, it ain't as bad as cancer. So it doesn't hit me as hard. You know what I mean? So it's hard to explain, but a lot of the things for me, it just made me a little more chill. I'm a chill dude already, but a little more just take things as they are. Yeah. What's the petty shit that you kind of have let go of since your diagnosis? Well, I'll put it this way. I remember when we were working on this movie, because this movie deal was going through forever. Like, And um, I used to think, wow, what, what would the Rotten Tomatoes score be? What if the movie doesn't do well? Yeah. What if it's 50%? What if people don't like it? What if the reviews are terrible? Now, I think, I hope I get to see the movie with my friends. That's it. If I get to see the movie, I'm on top of the world. That's the best day of my life. Who cares what the critics say? We made a movie. You know, I can bring my nieces and nephews and family and friends. You know what I mean? We can watch it. Like, that premiere will be great. And I don't take for granted that I may not get to see it, you know? These movies take years to make some of them. So you just become a little more appreciative of success. You successfully made a movie. If people don't like it, hey, they still bought a ticket, you know? (laughs) You still got paid, you know? It might not have executed the way you thought, but you make another one. Who cares? A lot of like the weird social insecurities, mental competition, all the stuff that's in your head that's like either preventing you from really just enjoying yourself and relaxing, a lot of that stuff for me just kind of went away. And I can't tell you how how to get there if you're not there, but a life-altering event normally will take you somewhere. And it took me to like a place where enjoy it, enjoy the ride, have success, save some money, spend some money. You want a chocolate chip cookie? Eat that chocolate chip cookie. You know what I mean? <laughs> it tastes good. Eat it. Don't worry. You know. What about regrets? Did any regrets go through your mind? I was never like living in the past. So I feel like if you regret something, you're living in the past. I was always present and I was always maybe a little too future. And that's what the future is like, oh, we can't do this because the future, da, 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 da. So now I kind of like, I'm not, I was never past, but I'm always present. So I don't think too far in the future anymore. Because the future could just get you nervous and anxiety and all that crap. Yeah, It's I like, know. oh my gosh, I'm getting older. What if I'm like, everyone's getting older. Yeah. Like, who's getting younger? I haven't <laughs> met a single person. <laughs> Like, you're going to be like, I'm 44. That's a good point. I'm going to be 45 next year, regardless of if, if I'm successful or not. So, try and be successful. If it doesn't work out, you're still 45. It's not like, I'm going to be 45. Then what? It's like, who cares? Somebody's 55. Somebody's 95. Somebody's 100. Somebody's 5. Then I'm like, oh, I'm going to be 6. Then what? You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just be present. Be happy. Be with your friends. Chill. Have your goals changed because of this? Yes and no. There is a little sense of urgency. So if I want to do something, I don't hesitate as much. I don't be like, mm, I don't know. I'm like, just do it. If you fail, you fail. Move on. So every day, it's like, I'm busy. My mind is busy. I'm trying to do stuff. It's not like I'm trying to do stuff just in case, blah, blah, blah. It's just, you just want to do, you know? And you, you have more confidence because you don't have all these negative Nancys in your head. You know what I mean? And people are more supportive. Like, you can't say you have cancer. People are like, ah, yeah, too bad, you know, sucker. You know, people know it and they, you know. So you you just do, just be you, be present, 
have fun. Don't sweat the small stuff. It's an interesting space. It's a very interesting space. And so far, like health-wise, I'm stable. I'm not winning. I'm not losing. I'm stable. But in my condition, that's a good thing. Like I get treatment every other week and I'm used to it. And it's just, it is what it is. Is there anything that you would like to change about the way that you're dealing with things or about the way you're healing? Not really, because there's still kind of an unknown, right? So put it this way. If I'm exactly like this for the next five years, and then there is some sort of magic bullet, clinical trial, and I'm cured, I can do that no problem. I would have no regret, no thing. I'll take it. That would be like a dream. And that's not most people's dream. Most people's like, I need satisfaction now. I'm not willing to wait. I don't have pain. People have seen me. I'm a funny dude. You know, I laugh. I'm working right now in a comedy room. I'm good. So you do want to hope that there's something down the line and that you can kind of look forward to. But other than that, you just have to stay present. You can't say, hey, hey, doctor, stop doing this. Let's try this. Because that could, you might be out. You're not saying it has to be like doom and gloom. But if things are kind of stable, stay there. Because it's cancer. It's a tough one. If you can keep it at bay, because it's like, it's like a war going on my body. And if there's a truce, I'll take it. Being from Canada, do you kind of wish that you were in Canada where, it was, where it's more affordable? Is it more affordable? Yeah. Well, American healthcare is probably the best in the world for the people that have it. And luckily with work and everything, I have the best healthcare. It doesn't come out of my pocket. It comes out of the insurance company's pockets. My copies are low. So I can't really say, you know, whether it be better or worse because I don't know. But um, so far, America is taking care of me health-wise because I'm working. If I'm not working, I don't know what my care would be like. I just can't believe they never had preconditions or whatever. Oh, yeah. They they wouldn't cover yeah. if you had a condition already. You That's crazy. Get like, what, yeah, like what's that person conditions. supposed to do? Mm-hmm. You know, they're sick. Yeah. It's just interesting, but I can't say that I'm being, I'm taken care of very well. I have a great team. But I'm sure in Canada, it'd be the same. You know what I mean? So, obviously, we know that the healthcare in the U.S. is, you know, decent. I guess very good, mm-hmm. like you said. <laughs> no, if you have it, you're great. Yeah. This is a lot of people, not everybody has it. Right. So in Canada, say the Canada, say the Canadian healthcare is A minus and American healthcare is A plus, but only sixty or seventy percent of the people in America have it, and one hundred percent of people in Canada have it. I think people would rather take the A minus for everybody than the A plus for some. But if you're here and you have A plus, hey, you don't care. Everyone's a little selfish, but if you don't, you're in a little trouble. Now, do you have to pay for a part of it in Canada? I mean, you're going to pay like your prescription. There's certainly, say, part of your prescription drugs. You might have to wait uh, a little longer for a surgery, especially if you're getting older, stuff like that. But in general, it's socialized healthcare. You know, it's kind of like public school. If you choose, you can go to other countries and you can have elective surgeries and whatever, whatever. But public school is public school. It's a free education. You're going to take it. So even if you don't work, you get healthcare in Canada? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a citizenship. You're a Canadian citizen. You go to the doctor. Now, you got to remember, I haven't been in Canada. Like, I haven't lived in Canada for like 20 years now. But you have your stuff. If you're working, you have better things. Maybe your prescriptions are taking care of something. But, you know, you can go to see a doctor, <laughs> you know. You're taxed a little higher. And they take a pool of money and they decide how much goes to healthcare. It's just like army. It's not, it's not like if the United States goes to war, you don't have to pay for your city. Or your block, the country, you know, the, the federal government says, all right, we got money. We're going to 
We're going to protect our citizens. So that's how healthcare is feeding Canada. Sounds so simple, yet it's so hard for so many people to comprehend here in the United States. Well, most <laughs> most developed countries have socialized healthcare. That's why it's odd. Usually, like, it's the really underdeveloped countries, or, you know, these, I guess you call them third world countries. Those countries, normally the infrastructure is not there yet, but they'll probably get there and they'll probably jump at it, but they just don't have it yet. So it's, America is different in that way, but it's the philosophy and the capitalism and the... Well, it's funny because the, both neighbors to the U.S. have socialized healthcare. Mexico has socialized healthcare mm-hmm. also, and so does Canada, and, it's, and the U.S. doesn't, I guess. I don't know. It's like people would rather hold on to their income longer than have it go to healthcare. Yeah. I think, it, like they would rather have lower taxes than free healthcare. It's kind of like a, a philosophy of America where maybe they don't trust the government. So something's wrong. If the government's giving you something, they're taking it somewhere else. You know, I, I'm not sure. Or it's I'm not paying for you type mentality. Yeah. But I mean, when I drive on a road, I'm driving on that road. I never, I never made that road. I mean, you know what I mean? Like things are being shared and people don't care. It's just, there's just certain topics that they care about. I think now it's like, I think Obamacare, you kind of have to have healthcare. So it's it's a little different. If you don't have the funds, it can kind of help you. I don't see that going away because <laughs> it's hard to take something away to people. Yeah. Once you give it to Once them. Once you get it. Yeah. Like now that we have preventative healthcare coverage, we can get yearly screenings for preventing us from getting sicker. So yeah. now that we have preventative healthcare covered, fully covered, I don't see people giving that right up. I don't see people giving up the right to having full lifetime coverage if they get very sick, which yeah. is another great thing about Obamacare as birth control. Birth control is now fully covered. Sure. And that's another gift of Obamacare. So I don't think people will want to give that up no matter what side yeah, of, the, and, and the, the opposition of the aisle they're in. used to say that, oh, our economy is suffering because we, we have Obamacare. Well, right now, we still have Obamacare. According to Trump himself, the economy is the best it's ever been, right? So it's kind of like you got to be careful of like who's telling you what and why. Because they're telling you what they want you to believe in. But they're saying, hey, you can't, you can't have a strong economy and have health care. Well, apparently the economy is strong. The opposition will still, you know, will say that. But then they don't say, well, yeah, we still, you know, that that argument just gets dropped and lost. You just have to be, as a citizen of the country, you have to be really careful. Like, if they told you that and things aren't true four or five years later, well, then why'd they say it? You know, were they saying it because they thought they were right or were they saying it just to convince you to vote for them or, you know, or dismantle or power grab and all that other stuff. So it's freedom of thought too. You know, you got to do your research, feel, feel if you feel comfortable with this party in power, then vote for them. If not, vote for somebody else. So what? But I can't vote. I'm a green card holder. (laughs) (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) So what have you learned about yourself throughout this crappy process of dealing with cancer? A part of it is like you get used to stuff. The first couple of weeks were rough. Then a couple of months, okay, getting used to it. Six months later, surgeries, this, that, there's no more pain. You get used to it. You start working again, you get used to it. You get used to talking about it. You just get used to it. You have a little bit more resiliency than you think in general, in life. If I lost a limb, I couldn't think about that right now. I'd be like, there's no way. I'd be like, if it happened, you'd, you would get used to it. You'd manage. Your other arm gets stronger. You know what I mean? You, you, your clothing changes. You just, you know, human beings can adapt. And you can still be happy. You can still write. I write when I'm getting treatment. 
I gave some pages, some script pages of my comedy to my doctor. Like, these are like my friends now, you know what I mean? So you just deal. And most people, it's funny because they're like, oh, I'm having a rough day. I don't want to tell you because I know what you're going through. I'm like, what am I going through? It's three days <laughs> every 14. I'm good, you know? I'm making a ton of money. I'm making money telling jokes. This is crazy, you know? Like, this is a lot better than the, the type of tech work I was doing. So I'm, you know, the phrase living your best life. I met my girl after I got diagnosed. We're living together now. I never had a serious girlfriend before. I was just a bachelor floating around having a good time. Now I'm, you know, living with a female <laughs> in a really nice apartment. So I'm, you just get used to it. You're good. The people around you are going to accept you. Everyone's got a story. Like when I told the, the writing room that I had cancer, everybody in the writing room was like, oh, wow. And then stories came out about what they went through. And dude, everyone's got some trauma. It could be the divorce. It could be some crazy stuff. And you're like, oh, wow. I didn't know. You know, so it just, it, it gets people to kind of like maybe open up to you a little bit. Because if you're sharing this, then they want to be like, well, you know, X, Y, Z. You know what I mean? And it's just, we're humans. Our bodies are going to get old eventually. Mine just kind of got old now <laughs> in a weird way. Most people are either going to die of old age or going to die of some sort of disease. It's just that my body goes, all right, you're 95 right now. <laughs> you know, take it easy. Be careful. This is the way it is. Well, you look great. So I wouldn't worry about that. I know, and I lost weight too. <laughs> I was about 220 before. I'm all, you know, I'm trim now. <laughs> so I'm good. Yeah, no problem. No worries. I have two more questions for you. The first one is, what is your passion? And the second one is, how do you define success? So let's start with your passion. I think passion-wise, always been an entrepreneur. So I just want to do stuff. I want to create stuff. I want to invent stuff. I want to be unique, but not like way out there unique, you know what I mean? It's not like I'm doing stuff just for attention. But I want to find something that, hey, that's that's neat. I don't think I haven't seen that before. I want to discover. I want to look at life and just kind of enjoy it and take from it and give back to it. So my passion is just to, for right now, is creating stories, TV, film, and just having people react to it. Having, you know, having people enjoy it. Having people say, wow, that was cool. That made me laugh. I'm not saying it changed your life, but it could have changed your mood even for a few hours. I'm good with that. The second question is, how do you define success? I feel like success is just failing upwards. Not in the typical sense, but failing, making adjustments, keep pushing. Failing, making adjustments, keep pushing. Failing, making adjustments, keep pushing. And then all of a sudden, hey, you didn't fail. All right, make adjustments, keep pushing. You know what I mean? You hit that one plateau. Almost like a video game. So it's not so much oh, I did this and it paid me a lot of money. It's, I done the work to really put myself in a good position and I got rewarded. And I'm going to do it again and maybe slightly tune it, change it slightly to do even a bigger thing to really put me in a good position. Because we're all in competition at some level in life. You could be competing for a spouse, competing for a job, competing for your health, competing for your politics, whatever. Competing just to be happy. So you have to kind of work in a smart way that makes it not feel like work, makes your passions align, keep people around you that are cool and successful, and get some reward for it. The reward does not have to be financial either. Like, there's people out there that just help people, and they have a decent salary, it's fixed, but their reward is seeing the person they help 
go on to bigger and better things. You know what I mean? So I, I want to, like, as a writer, as a storyteller, as an entertainer, put stuff out there, keep doing stuff, have a great track record, and then have somebody down the road that's, like, nine years old going, I want to be like that guy. I want to do his path. He may start on my path and then do something else. That's fine. But, you know, just give a little bit of inspiration saying, hey, that person kind of looks like me or acts like me or sounds like me. I want to do what he's doing. That, to me, that's success. For sure, one of the most difficult things to understand in life is that we're only here for a short time. I find myself often lost in those what-ifs and scared to take risks because failure is embarrassing. But as we discussed in episode 114, what would we learn if not for failure? I don't like losing, but there's one thing I'm more terrified of, and that is feeling regret. So I'm going to leave you with this. What's going to be your choice? Doing something and risk being embarrassed or regretting that you never even tried? Thank you for listening to Diferente. If you liked this episode, let me know by leaving a five-star review and by sharing a screenshot of this podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Just don't forget to tag me at Adiferente Life so I can know you're listening. Hasta pronto.